So Gospel of Matthew, if you don't have a Bible with you, the Bible in the pew is available. We're going to be on page 82 in the pew Bible. Uh, last week, Spencer talked about this story of Jesus having dinner with his friends and Mary, this woman, uh, giving him this anointing with perfume, which was this extravagant act of worship, and it kind of making the disciples angry because that could have been used to give money to the poor, specifically Judas. He wasn't super excited about this, and then he goes off at the end of the last section to find a way to make some money off of Jesus. So we pick back up in the story in verse 17. Uh, we, last week, we were probably at about Wednesday evening, the last week of Jesus' life. Verse 17 says, On the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So the, the feast... The way this is working is this is one of the biggest feasts of the Jewish people, and the Passover feast is this celebration of their liberation by God from Egypt in the book of Exodus. If you know the story of Moses, um, he goes down to Egypt to deliver his people. The Pharaoh says, no, I'm not going to let your people go. God uh, begins to uh, administer a series of plagues on the Egyptians until finally the final plague is God says anyone who is not covered by the blood of the lamb over the doorpost of their house, their firstborn son will be killed and many Egyptian sons are killed and at that point the Pharaoh says, okay, Moses, you can go with your people, get out of my country. The Passover is the celebration of that meal, the slaughter of the lamb, and the spreading of its blood over the doorpost that protects the Israelites from the wrath of God. And it's followed by a seven-day feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so this is kind of this big holiday season for the Jewish people. There would have been thousands, hundreds of thousands of people in Jerusalem for this feast. Passover happens on Friday. Sundown Friday, sundown Saturday, this is the day of Passover, but it's not Friday yet, it's Thursday. But Jesus knows something that nobody else does. He knows that he's not going to be available to have dinner with his friends on Friday, because just like the Passover lambs are going to be taken to the temple and killed to as a symbolic gesture of the people's protection from the wrath of God, Jesus is going to be taken out of the city and killed on Friday at the same time as the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And so Jesus knows, I don't get to celebrate Passover this year. So he arranges to have Passover a day early on Thursday. And this, this doesn't... This shouldn't strike us as too odd. On, on Thanksgiving, you, you have to have Thanksgiving with your family and your, you know, your siblings and your cousins and your in-laws and all of those people that you are, you know, bound to. But what, what do we do a few days before that? We have Friendsgiving. We have a meal with all the people we want to spend time with at Thanksgiving, right? This is what Jesus is doing. A day before Passover, he's getting his best friends together and they're going to share this meal. 
Look at verse 18. Go into the city to a certain man, he said, and tell him, the teacher says, my time is near. I am celebrating the Passover at your place with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. This is a funny little detail. Go go to a certain man. Go to so-and-so's house. Matthew's writing this down. He was one of the disciples. He was there. So he knows whose house they went to, but he doesn't say whose house it was. In fact, none of the gospel writers tell us whose house this is. They all say something cryptic, like there's going to be a guy, and one of them says he's going to be carrying a pot of water on his head, and look at, and it's, it's very weird. And we just, we don't know who this man is, and we don't know why it's so secret. It's just a mystery. But the important thing here is Jesus is in charge of this situation. It's a lot like the donkey a couple chapters earlier. Remember when Jesus waltzed into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, and we call the triumphal entry, and he's worshipped as the king? And he's all like, hey guys, go into town, and there's going to be a donkey tied up, untied, and if anybody questions you, just say, the teacher needs him. And they're like, okay, that's weird, but that's exactly what happens, because Jesus is in charge of this situation. It's easy to think that that Jesus is a victim. Jesus is this this rabbi, this teacher. He's going into town to try to do good things and love people, and he gets sidelined by the religious authorities who want him dead, and they arrest him. But that's not what happens at all. At every step of the way, Jesus is in complete control of the situation. Go here, do that. There's going to be a donkey. There's going to be a man. We're going to have dinner here because he is in charge. Jesus is not the victim. Verse 20, when evening came, he was reclining at the table with the twelve. Now, we're going to talk more about the Passover itself next week, because this meal is going to last a few weeks for us. But I want to get us the right picture in our head. You've probably seen this picture before. Uh, This is, who knows what this is? Karis does. What is it, Karis? Yeah, it's The Last Supper by Leonardo da Vinci. Super famous, super important, Renaissance painting, totally historically inaccurate. This is not what this dinner would have looked like. Here's another image that was closer. This is called a triclinium table arrangement. This is uh, a Greco-Roman design that the Jewish people would have used in the first century. They're all, it's a low table. They're all kind of reclining on cushions in a U-shape. So when you get the picture of this conversation, when you get the picture of what's going on here, think of something like this, not something like Leonardo thought. So they're having dinner. It's their Passover meal. We're going to set that aside for a little bit. We'll talk a little bit more about this Passover last week or next week, last week. What I want to do this week is I want to talk about sin. And the reason I want to talk about sin is because we're going to see this, this, this character, this figure, this, this man named Judas, and he's going to be interacting with the he's going to be interacting with Jesus a little bit, and I think he offers some really important insight into sin. Now, sin, sin's a weird word. I don't, I don't know that it's always helpful to use the word sin. If you've grown up in church, you know what sin is. If you're not, 
a church person, if you're just getting acquainted with Jesus, the word sin is kind of a weird word. I use the word brokenness a lot uh, because I think we all understand that there's something about our lives that, that doesn't work right, it doesn't fit together. Um, I also use the word evil fairly regularly. Sometimes that's helpful. Um, we all see things in the world and even in our own lives that are just wicked. But sin is a word that the Bible uses. And we're going to talk about sin this morning. I have a definition of sin. This is a long definition. It's going to be on the screen. It's by philosopher Cornelius Plantinga. He says, The Bible presents sin by way of major concepts, principally lawlessness and faithlessness, expressed in an array of images. Sin is the missing of a target, a wandering from the path, a straying from the fold. Sin is a hard heart and a stiff neck. Sin is blindness and deafness. It is both the overstepping of a line and the failure to reach it, both transgression and shortcoming. Sin is a beast crouching at the door. In sin, people attack or evade or neglect their divine calling. These and other images suggest deviance. Even when it is familiar, sin is never normal. Sin is disruption of created harmony and then resistance to divine restoration of that harmony. Above all, sin disrupts and resists the vital human relation to God. Plantinga's definition is really good, I think, because it lists off a lot of different metaphors that Scripture uses. Sometimes it seems like sin is this thing that we accidentally fall into, missing the mark, straying from the path. And that's true sometimes. We find ourselves in sin and we think like, well, how did I get here? But other times it seems like sin is willful. We choose to walk away from God. Sometimes it feels like sin happens to us, blindness, deafness. It's just something that we've been born with. But other times it seems like there's a line and we're going to decide to make a choice to cross it. So I wanted to talk about three characteristics of sin that I see in this passage. And the first one is sin is a betrayal. Sin is a betrayal. Look at verse 21. While they were eating, he said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. Now Jesus is talking about a specific sin. At at some point in the narrative, Judas is going to actually turn him over, betray him, to the Jewish authorities, to the Roman guards. But the truth is, all sin is a betrayal. All sin is us turning our backs on God. D.A. Carson writes, the heart of all this evil sin is idolatry itself. It is the de-godding of God. It is the creature swinging his puny fist in the face of his maker and saying, in effect, if you do not see things my way, I'll make my own gods. I'll be my own God. Small wonder that the sin most frequently said to arouse God's wrath is not murder, say, or pillage, or any other horizontal barbarism, but idolatry, that which dethrones God. That is also why in every sin it is God who is the most offended party. So really, no matter what it is that we are about that goes contrary to the will of God, we are betraying God himself by living in ways that speak against his character. So, 
We know that Judas is going to betray Jesus. But why? Why is he going to do that? We don't really know. The text doesn't exactly say. Is it because of money? He was pretty upset about the whole perfume thing. And we know from uh, John's gospel that he was the treasurer and he was kind of taken a little bit off the top. Maybe he's mad about that. Is it political power? He, he's hoping that Jesus, the revolutionary, will come and overthrow the Roman occupation and set up a Jewish state that maybe he can be a, a leader in. We don't know, but whatever it is, Judas is saying, Jesus, your way isn't working. But all of the disciples are going to betray Jesus in a few more verses. Right? Peter's going to deny that he even knows Jesus. All of them are going to run away in the garden. When the way of Jesus leads his disciples into the hands of their enemies, they're going to flee. Because Jesus is going to come into direct confrontation with his enemies, and he's not going to resist them. And that's the point where the disciples are like, you know what, I'm out. I can't do that anymore. I can't, I can't go where you're going. And I wonder for us, when we are in sin, when we are acting in ways of rebellion against God, how, what is the thing that we're just saying, you know what, God, I'm not doing that. I know, I know that's what you want. I know that's what your word says, but you know what? I'm out. It's just not for me. We're going to be talking about violence in a couple weeks. Uh, Jesus is going to tell Peter to put his sword away, and we're going to talk about the implications of that for the Christian. But it's interesting, as, as Americans, we think, you know, the, the, the logical, reasonable thing is that the, the U.S. government would have all the tanks and all the missiles and all the guns and all the bullets, and if you're going to be a homeowner, you should have multiple weapons, and of course you should kill people and when they intrude upon your property, and we just have these assumptions about what it means to be human. And Jesus comes along and says, no, actually, no, you shouldn't do that. Christians don't respond with violence. Christians respond with love. Christians turn the other cheek. Christians go the extra mile. Christians love their enemies. And, and we don't look at that and go like, well, Jesus never said that. We look at that and go, well, that, that just doesn't work. What is the thing that we go, you know what, Jesus, that just doesn't work for me. I just, I just can't follow you there. G.K. Chesterton says, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting, it has been found difficult and left untried. And so the question for us is, what are the teachings of Jesus that I simply don't believe apply to me? Where do I go to in Scripture and go like, yeah, I don't like that part. I'm not going to do that. No matter what it is, sin is a betrayal. But number two, sin is our fault. Look at verse 22. Deeply distressed, the disciples, each one began to say to him, surely not I, Lord. And he replied, the one who dipped his hand with me in the bowl, he will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. So the disciples, they're surprised. They can't imagine betraying Christ. He's their life. They have lived the last three years with him. And 
hung on to him with everything that they've had, and they are shocked by this statement. And when Jesus says, the one who dipped his hand with me in the bowl, it, it seems like maybe he's pointing Judas out. I don't really think that's what's happening here. Um, if we read in John's gospel that uh, the same situation goes down and Peter whispers to John, he goes, hey, John, ask Jesus who's going to betray him. And then John leads over to Jesus and goes, Jesus, who's going to betray you? And then Jesus whispers something back to John. So even in that conversation, the whole room doesn't really know what's going on. And then after that, John says in his gospel that they still don't know that it's Judas. What I think Jesus is saying here is he's saying, this group of men, my closest friends are sharing a meal with me. Meals are incredibly intimate. We're not so much anymore, we eat with just about anybody, but to eat with someone in the ancient world would have been incredibly intimate and personal. This group of men is closer to Jesus than his family at this point. And he's saying, one of you that is sharing this meal with me is going to betray me. David writes in Psalm 41.9, even my friend in whom I trusted, the one who ate my bread, has raised his heel against me. This is a prophetic verse where Jesus is, uh, where, where David is unknowingly talking about what happened to Christ. One of you is going to betray me. But then, then Jesus says, the Son of Man is going to go just as it has been written about him, but woe to that man by whom the Son is betrayed. And Jesus affirms two paradoxical things. He says, the Scriptures have predicted that the Messiah will be betrayed. It's going to happen. But Judas is also morally responsible for his actions. And sometimes we have a problem with this. If, if God knows everything, if God knows that you're going to sin, then how can you be responsible for your sin? If you're just doing what He says that you are going to do, you can't be held liable for that. If God knows your sin ahead of time, doesn't he therefore make it so you sin? And I've not, never found that to be a problem. And it, I think it's because I like science fiction. Because there's all time travel and stuff in science fiction happens all the time. And it just like, you just learn to deal with it. But, but imagine um, when you go home this afternoon and you turn on the game and the Seattle Seahawks and the Denver Broncos come out on the field. And you think, wait, wait a second. And as, as, as you're watching it, you realize, oh, wait, for some reason, they're playing a rerun from 2014. And as the game goes on, you start going, oh, you know what? He's going to throw a pass here. Oh, and they're, they're going to do a run, and he's going to score a touchdown. And your friends are like, whoa, you, can, you, you know the future. The fact that you know what happened in that rerun of the game, does that affect the free choices that those football players made in 2014? No, they, they freely chose to do all the things that they did, and your understanding it, your knowing it, doesn't change that, doesn't have any bearing on that. Now, that works for us because that's a thing that happened in the past and we're in the future. But for God, it works in both directions. 
God can see the things that we'll do tomorrow like he's watching a rerun. And just because he knows exactly what you and I will do with our lives, the choices that we make, the places we go, the words we use, the the actions that we participate in, doesn't have any connection to whether he's forcing us to do it. Because we have free will. We have a choice either to live lives of holiness or to live lives of sinfulness. And God knows what we're going to choose, but it doesn't mean that he forces us to do it. Sometimes we talk about being um, caught in sin or a slave to sin or, or falling into sin. And sometimes that can be a helpful metaphor because uh, sometimes that's what f- sin feels like. But it also masks the reality that sin is ultimately a choice of the will. We all ultimately choose the course of our life. We all ultimately choose the words we're going to speak to our family. We're get, we choose the things that we allow into our eyes. We choose the attitudes that we hold on to. And Jesus says, I know what's going to happen, Judas, but you're still responsible for it. Sin is a betrayal and sin is our fault. And number three, sin keeps us from Jesus. Look at verse 25. Judas, his betrayer, replied, surely not I, Rabbi. You have said it, he told him. This whole you have said it thing, it's a, it's a Jewish idiom. It means yes. Matthew, right, yes, because that's, that's not how they did it back then. That's important later on when, when Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus goes, you said it. And there are people that will argue that, look, Jesus never said he was the Messiah. Yeah, he did. It means yes. So Jesus, Judas says, surely not I, Rabbi. And Jesus says, yeah, it's you. But notice what Judas does differently than the rest of the disciples. Look back at verse 22. Deeply distressed, each one of them said to him, surely not I, Lord. But then Judas, in verse 25, he says, surely not I, Rabbi. That's an important change. The disciples called Jesus Lord. Master, the person that I follow, the person that I model my life after, the one that I am not allowed to say no to. Judas calls him rabbi, teacher, nice guy, smart, love to hang out with him, great mind, fascinating. Has some interesting ideas that I will take under consideration. See, there's a distance between Jesus and Judas. And Judas is creating that distance. Jesus doesn't change the terms of their relationship because of Judas' sin. Judas does. Judas is the one that calls Jesus rabbi. What's wrong? There's sin in the way. Judas has already put into his plan betraying Christ, and he knows that he's caught in this moment, and there is sin standing in the way between him and Jesus, 
And Jesus doesn't recoil from that. Judas does. Every few years, our family goes to the Woodland Park Zoo in Seattle. And they have a building called the, I think it's called the Bug House. And it's this like U-shaped hallway that's filled with these plexiglass terrariums with all of these frightening things in them. And my family walks across and you know, points at the plexiglass and knocks on it to try to get the beetles and the flies and everything to do something. And, and they're moving through. And about the time you get to the base of the U in the hallway, there's this giant spider web. And there's a giant spider on it. And it takes you a minute, but then you realize there's no plexiglass here. And I don't know any, I don't know why they've just decided the spider's not going anywhere. But as soon as you realize there's no plexiglass, you're like this up against the back wall and you scoot by because you don't want the spider to get you. And we think that that's the way God feels about sin. It's so icky and God can't be around it and yeah. But that's not true. The reason there's distance between you and I and God when we're in sin is because we create the distance. It's because we recoil. It's because we back away. Because God's goodness and his holiness convicts us and we don't like it. I want to read a a long passage from the book of Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah is talking about the state of the nation of Israel. And in chapter 59, get back there, it's a long ways. He writes, Indeed, the Lord's arm is not too weak to save, but your ear, and his ear is not too deaf to hear, but your iniquities are separating you from your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not listen. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, and your tongues mutter injustice. No one makes claims justly. No one pleads honestly. They trust in empty and worthless words. They conceive trouble and give birth to iniquity. They hatch vipers' eggs and weave spiders' webs. Whoever eats their eggs will die Crack one open and a viper is hatched. Their webs cannot become clothing and they cannot cover themselves with their works. Their works are sinful works and violent acts are in their hands. Their feet run after evil and they rush to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are sinful thoughts. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths. They have not known the path of peace and there is no justice in their ways. They have made their roads crooked and no one walks And no one who walks on them will know peace. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not reach us. We hope for light, but there is darkness. For brightness, but we live in the night. We grope along a wall like the blind. We grope like those without eyes. We stumble at noon as though it were twilight, and we are like the dead among those who are healthy. We all growl like bears and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none for salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions have multiplied before you and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities, transgression and deception against the Lord, turning away from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering lying words from the heart. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far off. For truth has stumbled in the public square and honesty cannot enter. 
Truth is missing, and whoever turns from evil is plundered. That long passage describing the wickedness of the hearts of the Israelites starts with, God is not weak that He cannot save. God is not deaf that He cannot hear. But you have done all of these things. You have created this distance. And even the smallest sin puts barriers between you and God. There's a verse in 1 Peter chapter 3 that says, Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. There's a whole like marriage gender study in there that we're not going to talk about. Um, If you're worried the weaker partner is a physical weakness thing, which is typical between men and women, not always, but most of the time. But what I want to point out in that verse is Peter tells husbands, hey, you know what? If you're mistreating your wife, it's going to get in the way of your prayers. If you you are not honoring your wife as your co-heir, as your equal under Christ and the life of grace that you live, if you, are, if you are demeaning her, if you are berating her, if you're not showing her the honor that she deserves, there's a distance between me and you, and it's your fault. Your prayers will be hindered. Just because Judas's betrayal seems huge, it's better if you're never born, Jesus says. Maybe the greatest sin ever committed, I don't know. Just because it seems like a big sin doesn't mean that little sins aren't equally as damaging to the relationship that we have with God. And Jesus says, you have said it. Yes. And I think even now, it's an opportunity. Judas, you don't have to do this. Change course. This isn't set in stone. You have a choice. It doesn't have to be this way. But Jesus knows it is going to be this way. Sin is a betrayal. Sin is our fault, and sin keeps us from Jesus. So what are we going to do about that? What do we do with our sin? We learn from John's gospel that Judas leaves dinner at this point. He he goes out to start his plan of betrayal. That was the wrong choice. All of the disciples are going to betray Jesus tonight. They're all going to run away when he's arrested. Peter's going to deny that he even knows Jesus. And we all betray Jesus in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions. It's our fault. And we want to react to that by pulling away, by pulling away from prayer, from Scripture, from Jesus' people, by leaving And that's the wrong choice. The very next thing that Jesus does, and we're going to stop here, we're not going to get to verse 26 until next week, is he leads his friends in a new interpretation of the Passover meal. Every year, the head of the household would lead his family through the Passover, through the various um, parts of the meal and the cups and the the bread and the, the bitter herbs all of the different parts of the meal. If you've ever experienced a Seder dinner, you you know what that's like. But Jesus is going to change it up. He's going to do something totally new, and he's going to say, this bread, this bread that is broken for you is my body, broken on the cross. 
This cup is my blood. This new covenant that I'm making with you tonight. My blood shed on the cross. And we close our services every week rehearsing this meal that Jesus instituted. We've changed it over the years. It's not as, it's frankly not as great as it was when Jesus did it. But it's a ritual. It reminds us. The bread and the cup is a reminder of Jesus' body broken and Jesus' blood shed. Because when we have freely chosen to betray Christ, when we feel like running away from Him, His call is, you can't fix it, but I can. I did. I went to the cross to pay for that sin, to take it on myself, to pay the penalty of death and separation and destruction for you. And his broken body represented by the bread and his shed blood represented by the cup take the place of our betrayal. And so for us, as we look at sin and we recognize that even the smallest little sins that nobody even noticed except were just a little tinge of conscience in our heart is a betrayal. As we recognize that the, the brokenness in our hearts is our fault, we've chosen to stray. As we recognize the space that sin puts us, between us and God. It makes us want to run. What I think we should do is the exact opposite of that. If you're in a community group, uh, we've been studying the letter, John's first letter. And a few weeks ago, we read this in 1 John chapter 1. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light and there is absolutely no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and are not practicing the truth. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have no sin, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. One of the things that I think is heartbreaking about Judas, and we'll get to it in a few weeks, is he never sees Jesus again after the betrayal. He betrays him, he goes off, he has second thoughts. And he kills himself. The other disciples betray Jesus too. But they go back. They come together. They allow themselves to be healed by Christ. And if you're feeling this morning like, man, there's this weight of sin in my life. Maybe, maybe you've never given your heart to Christ. Maybe you've just never... Uh, experience the love of God. You have this burden of a, a life filled with sin, or, or maybe you are a follower of Jesus, but it's been a rough week, and you recognize there are some things in your life that you need to deal with. Don't run away. Don't pull back. 
Move forward. Move into the communion meal. Remind yourself of what Jesus has done for you. Take some time. Come up front while we sing and and use the prayer rugs and pray. Talk to Jesus about what's going on in your heart. Open and confess to him. And then like 1 John says, walk in the light. That means other people. Sometimes I think we're, we're afraid of that. Like, I'll confess my sin to God because he knows everything anyway, but no one else is allowed to know the broken parts of my soul. And John says that's exactly the opposite of what we're called to be as Christians. We're called to step out into the light, to confess our sins to one another, and he promises that he will forgive us. Sin is a dark part of the human experience but it's one that we all share. And this place, as John was talking about core values, honesty and authenticity, we, we need to be people that own that. Like, I, I have all kinds of rotten, broken things in my heart. We, I talk about them every week at our community group, if you're interested. <laughs> but Jesus saved me. And that's That's the good news of the gospel, right? Is that we have been made whole through Christ. So I'm going to invite uh, Jackson back up. We're going to sing. I just encourage you to spend some time talking to Christ about your sin. Ask him to reveal it to you. Spend some time in prayer and ask him for the courage to open your life up to others and brothers and sisters to help you walk in the light. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.